Well, good evening, Hallows Church. Let me invite you to take out your Bibles and turn to that same section that was just read a moment ago, Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 46. My name is Keith Fergus. I'm serving in West Seattle. I'm the pastor of missional ministry there. I do bring you greetings from your faith family who just worshiped earlier this morning in West Seattle. It's a pleasure to be here with you again. Uh, What a great book this is that we're studying, isn't it? What a wonderful gospel that God has written through this uh, man so long ago named Mark. We're about to come to a head in this gospel account. Next week, we're going to be studying what is commonly known as the triumphal entry of Jesus into the city of Jerusalem. Now, if you've been with us for any manner of time, as we've been studying through the gospel of Mark, especially in the last several chapters, we have seen a very deliberate turn of events, a turn of direction in Jesus's ministry such that he is going towards Jerusalem. Everything that he is doing is geographically headed towards Jerusalem and even thematically headed towards what will happen at Jerusalem. And slowly over time, he has been revealing more and more who he is, but also what he has come to do that he has, as Kim said earlier, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, as he would say in other places that he would suffer at the hands of sinful men and die, but three days later rise again. Everything in this book is going to start coming to a head beginning next week when Jesus arrives at the destination, and he enters into Jerusalem. And so with that said, I think we have to ask ourselves, why would the last person that he encounters before he enters Jerusalem be this man, this blind beggar named Bartimaeus? Why would this be the last physical healing that Jesus would perform in his ministry before stepping foot in Jerusalem and accomplishing the purpose for which he was sent. Why him? This is the question we will carry into our text tonight. And before we jump in, let me pray for us one more time. God, we believe that you are glorious and wonderful beyond comprehension, beyond words, and yet you have chosen to reveal yourself in such a way that we can comprehend you at least a little bit, that we, with our weak words, can describe you and understand you just a little bit. We thank you for the revelation of your glory, especially through your Son, Jesus Christ. And we also thank you for the revelation that you have given us through your word, God, we want to come to your word humbly, and we believe that you are in authority here and not us, and so we ask, God, that you would speak the truth to us, and you would say to us what this means and what you intended to say here through this man's story, and why 2,000 years ago, your son, Jesus, followed the will of Uh, followed your will in the Holy Spirit and met on the road, blind Bartimaeus, before he would enter Jerusalem. God, I confess my weakness, that I am often, including now, nervous before I teach. And so I thank you for the opportunity to confess my weakness so that you may be shown strong. 
We love you, Jesus, and we pray this in your name for your glory and our joy in you. Amen. Whenever we look at Bartimaeus' story, we have to take into consideration where we have come from, especially in the past, you know, just the past chapter. Jesus encountering children. These children, as Pastor Andrew would describe about three four weeks ago, that these children were without rights, without resources, and they wanted to come to Jesus. The disciples would forbid them, but Jesus would indicate, no, this is the type of person, this is the type of attitude that is needed to enter in to the kingdom of God. And then, not coincidentally, the the next story would be the rich young ruler, this man who it would seem would be on the opposite end of the spectrum from a child who has everything. He has power, he has resources, he has his youthfulness and his health, he has everything that anyone could seemingly want, including the external practice of religion. We find out that even though he, this rich man had everything, he was shown and revealed to, in fact, have nothing. And it's in light of these types of characters that we meet Bartimaeus tonight. And especially in light of the rich young ruler, I want to use a phrase to describe him that we will use often tonight. And that is the phrase of personal desolation. See, Jesus would often minister in desolate places. We see that in the Gospel of Mark. And a desolate place could be kind of a wilderness a desert area, we would see Jesus perform the miracle of feeding thousands of people in a desolate place where it would look bleak, it would look without life, without the vivid colors of beauty and greenery. That's what desolate places are like. And I believe that here in this moment, we encounter a man who is like a desolate landscape. He is personally desolate. Everything about him, we wouldn't say that we envy. At least on the surface, he's poor, he's blind, he's begging. In fact, the posture that he assumes throughout this story until Jesus calls him, he's just sitting idly and begging. But what we learn as we continue to examine this man's life and his encounter with Jesus in this text is that personal desolation has a significant role in the kingdom of God. While personal desolation, and we will understand that phrase as we continue to go, on, go along, this is often something that we seek to avoid. This is often something that we are afraid of. This is something that we do not want to come into our lives. We do not want for other people. It makes us nervous to even think that we could go to a place where we would feel and describe ourselves as desolate. And by the end of our time, I hope that we are a little farther along in believing that this, ha- this too has a place in God's purposes and in God's kingdom. And at the very least, we see it in how this man responds to Jesus. Let me read again in verse 46. They came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples, this is Jesus with his disciples, and a large crowd, a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the road. And when he heard that it was Jesus the Nazarene, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. 
And many were sternly telling him to be quiet, but he kept crying out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And of course, he would be screaming a lot louder than that, but I figured I would spare you from that. <clears throat> I mean, this guy is making a scene. And we find out that he's making a scene because in, in perhaps a way that would make his, the, the crowd at that time uncomfortable would make us uncomfortable whenever people make a scene. He's doing this because he's demonstrating faith. He's demonstrating that, the, that these desolate places are an opportunity and an occasion to believe certain things about God, and they're an opportunity and an occasion to believe certain things about us. And so we're going to understand a few of these things here in just a moment. Now let's look at this Bartimaeus. Again, especially in light of that rich young ruler that we encountered only a couple of weeks ago. This blind man has nothing. He is physically afflicted. We find out from the language here that it's, it's very possible that he wasn't born blind, but at some point he became blind. So he's, he's physically afflicted. We see that he is going to be economically afflicted, economically desolate. He has nothing. Every day he's begging. This would be common practice in those days. He would sit on the road near Jericho, sit on the side of the road. He would wait for people to pass by and his entire day would be spent asking people for help. Especially as a blind man, he would not be able to care for himself as most people would. Almost certainly, he was socially desolate. Anytime you've walked downtown in Seattle, I mean, Seattle is known even nationally for the rapid rate, and, uh, rate of growth in its homeless population. You cannot go to a major intersection in this city without encountering someone standing there holding a sign and asking for help. And yet, how often have you and I participated and been guilty of turning a blind eye, turning away from walking, uh, turning away from that person? And there's so many articles that I have read, homeless people who have either come out of homelessness or they're still in it, and they say one of the worst parts about being homeless is you feel like a second-class citizen. You feel like it sometimes you are not even human because people won't even acknowledge your existence. Do you think that's a new thing? You can be, you can be, you can get, this is a guarantee. This happened in those days too. This man every day would experience that same thing. In his blindness, in his poverty, knowing that people are walking by him, not even looking at him, not even acknowledging his presence. But not just that, because he was a blind man, there's a way that he was even spiritually desolate. There are ways because of his blindness, much like a leprous person in those days would be excluded from participating in certain facets of temple worship within Judaism because he was blind. And so there are so many ways where this man's life feels like a wasteland. And yet here in this, this story, he's sitting there and he recognizes 
somehow that Jesus is coming. It, maybe it's the murmurs that he hears. Maybe he hears people say, it's Jesus, it's Jesus. It's, maybe it's something like that. Whatever it is, he knows that Jesus is coming. And, and when he's crying out in this moment, son of David, have mercy on me. Do you think that there's a single thought in his mind that he has anything to offer to Jesus? Do you think he views himself as a great candidate for the kingdom? Do you think he views himself as someone that Jesus can use, someone that Jesus would want being at the top of the list? Because the way we tend to think about it, we view the rich young ruler as that type of a person, which is why the disciples were so astounded when Jesus said, someone like him, it is impossible for them to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Personal desolation in this man's life and in ours is an opportunity and occasion for us to believe that we are needy and without resource before Jesus. To remember that we, in the end, have nothing to offer to him. And that sounds like something that would agitate us, something that would bother us that that we have nothing to offer to this one Jesus. But that is exactly what we see here. What was the lesson learned from Jesus' encounter with the children? Why were children so often seen in that day as second-class citizens? Because they had nothing to offer. Anyone who's ever spent any time with children, either babysitting or raising kids, knows that they require tons of resources and they have very little output. That's exactly what this man is. In fact, you could go as far to say that he is an adult, a grown embodiment of what Jesus was talking about only verses prior. Needy and without resource. And when he's crying out for mercy to Jesus, why is he doing that? We can either look at it as he's doing the same thing that he would do for anyone else in those days when he would cry out for alms, for food, for money. We can view it like that, but I don't think that's the best way to view it. And let me explain a few reasons why. One, how common is it for you to hear one person say to another, have mercy on me? When's the last time you've heard anybody say that? When's the last time you've said it? you probably can't recall. It's not something that we say to each other. And even in this day, it wasn't something that they would necessarily say to each other. If you go read the, the biblical accounts of different exchanges between people, you don't see that phrase used often, especially with people who are on the same level as each other. You just don't see it. And so why is all of a sudden he crying out to, why is he crying out to Jesus for mercy? And not only that, why is he calling him the son of David? When you read in the Bible, you do see this phrase used. You do see people, you see people crying out for mercy. But this is almost always the scenario in which it happens. You have someone who is in a position of authority, and you have someone who is under that authority. And the person who is under that authority has fallen short in some way. They do not measure up to maybe the greatness of this authority, or maybe they have 
uh, failed in some way or they not properly represented that authority. And in biblical accounts, whether it's maybe a king or a ruler or an employer, even in the parables, some of the parables Jesus would say in the New Testament about a judge or a king, people cry out for mercy to someone in authority. And if it's not clear enough from that, it's definitely clear when he calls Jesus the son of David. You see, there's a lot of titles that have been given to Jesus and assigned to him as we've been studying the gospel of Mark. Recently, we've heard things like the son of man. We've heard the Christ. We've heard the son of God. We've heard different titles for Jesus. There are some that... um, aren't used as much here, but maybe they are a lot in the gospel of Matthew, or maybe they're not used as much in either those, but a lot in the gospel of Luke, or we don't see the son of David much in this gospel. And I think maybe next week we have an opportunity to unpack it a little more, but essentially the son of David can fit in the same category as some of those other titles that are assigned to Jesus, these titles that were introduced and developed in the Old Testament and people were anticipating for this person to come. And then all of a sudden Jesus shows up and people realize that he is the fulfillment of that Old Testament picture. He is the one that deserves that title. Just like, for example, the Son of Man began and was developed in Daniel chapter 7, Jesus would show up and he is the Son of Man. This idea of the anointed one or the Christ or the Messiah was developed in the Old Testament all the way back into Leviticus. And then Jesus would show up. He is the anointed one. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. But where did Son of David come from? Again, and this kills me that this is the case, we cannot fully unpack the weightiness of that title given to Jesus. But let me tell you a little bit of a story to describe it to you. Beginning in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, you see the story of a young boy named David. Now, David is kind of of no account in his family. He's the youngest among several brothers, and he's relegated to being the shepherd in the family. Whenever the Bible describes his physical appearance, he's not described like a warrior. He's not described as a kingly figure. In fact, the only positive thing it has to say about his appearance is that he's ruddy and handsome, which I guess is pretty good, but not much outside of that. This David would go on and he would be chosen by God to eventually become the first king of a united Israel. Along the way, he would have this uh, well-known bout with a giant named Goliath. You could read that story in, uh, I can't remember which Samuel it is. Anyways, it's there. <laughs> you, if you haven't read the story, it's also, you know, in sporting events, you've heard those is a classic David and Goliath matchup. You have the heavyweight, and then you have the underdog. That was born from the Bible. It was born from this character, David. In time, he would become a king, and through a lot of war, They would consolidate power and all of the tribes of Israel would become united in this land that God had promised to give them long, long ago. And as David sits on his throne, he has this idea. He says, wow, I I live in a house and a palace made of cedar. But God, he, he lives in a tent. 
And guys, I'm, I'm paraphrasing a very large section of text, so go with me. I live in a house of cedar, which would have been beautiful, but God, you live in a tent. And that didn't sit well with him. And what he was referring to when he said a tent was this thing called the tabernacle that was established. Uh, we see it in Exodus. And it, it was this uh, mobile meeting place where uh, God had given them instructions and in how they could worship him in this physical structure. But it would be something that because they were a mobile people, they could pack it up and move to the next place. Well, eventually when they came into the land, they still had this tabernacle. And even though God is the God of all creation, he made uh, the universe and everything in it, he is not confined to a building made with human hands. Nevertheless, he would make a promise to his people and said, I will dwell there in your midst. But it didn't sit right with David that he lived in a beautiful house made of cedar, but the God of the universe lived in a tent. And so he says, God, I'm going to make a temple. I'm going to build a temple for you. And God responds to David through a prophet named Nathan. And Nathan comes up to David and he says, David, God says that you are not going to build him a house. There will be a house. Your son will build it. And that would happen. His son Solomon would end up building a beautiful temple for this beautiful God. But God tells David through this prophet, you will not build me a house. Your son will, but here's what I will do, David. I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to set someone on your throne and it will last forever. Your kingdom, David, will never end. And so from this moment on, a hope was birthed in Israel that one day God would send a king who would rule forever. Problem is, is David died. David had a son, Solomon. Solomon died. Solomon had a son who would sit on that same throne in the line of David, and then that son would die, and so on and so on for generations and centuries. There would be kings who would sit on the throne of David as a descendant of David. Some of them were good kings, some of them were bad kings, but in the end it doesn't matter because all of them died. And so what about this son of David? And if that weren't challenging enough, as time would go on, God would send prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, and others who would proclaim words from God to the people. And as a part of that proclamation, God would make reference to this king who was to come. Some of the other phrases used for this son of David is things like uh, the root of Jesse, the branch of David, the righteous branch, those types of languages are all referring to this son of David and this figure is being built up more and more and more. And again, we just don't have the time to do it justice in this sermon. But by the time it reaches first century, this son of David is the longing of every heart in Israel. But can you imagine being a poor, blind beggar with nothing to offer to this king? He's crying for mercy because he knows he's accountable to this king. He, know this, he knows that this Jesus 
is the king that everyone has been waiting for, and he has to answer to this king. And how can this man in his poverty and in his blindness and in his idleness, and he can do nothing, how can he feel good at all before this king? He has nothing to offer to him. He is personally desolate. And so he has nothing left to cry out. But what? Mercy. As if to say, Jesus, I know who you are. I know that you are the hope and you are the longing of every heart. I know that you are glorious. I know that you have a throne that will last forever. And who am I? Have mercy on me. And if anything, I think this is one of the most valuable parts of personal desolation. I think this is one of the most valuable components of why this matters to God and why this is a part of being a part of his kingdom is for the, the sake that at some point in our lives we have to cry out mercy. Now for some of you, this was how you met Jesus for the first time. This describes me and how I met Jesus for the first time. Personally desolate as a 19-year-old college student and I was suicidal. I hated myself, I hated my life, I hated my past. And when I looked to my future, it was black, it was bleak, it was hopeless, and I had nothing to look forward to. And the only thing that I could think of to cry out was for mercy. This may describe some of you. That is not the type of testimony of of being born again that I desire for my children. I don't want them to have to walk that path. But that is just the path that has been given to some of us, that we enter into this faith by this means. However, even if you did not enter into the faith through personal desolation, you have learned that it is a part of following Jesus, haven't you? You have learned that at some point, no matter how much things on the outside look really good, You know, people would observe your life and they would think all kinds of great things, but on the inside, you feel like you're dying. You feel like maybe you're even lost. You may even use those words, I feel lost. Personal desolation is a part of the kingdom of God, at the very least, at the very least, because God wants to produce in you and me the type of heart that says, Son of David, have mercy on me. That may be the only thing that you can whisper whisper or cry out in the midst of tears, but is one of the most precious things that you can cry out for is mercy. But it doesn't just stop there. And I think one of the one of the coolest phrases in this entire section is what you see at the beginning of verse 49. It says, Jesus stopped. There were probably tons of people clamoring for Jesus' attention in this moment. But at the cries of this man, Jesus stopped. Jesus is responding to his faith. He's crying for mercy because he actually believes 
that Jesus is merciful. Otherwise, he wouldn't be screaming at the top of his lungs and making a scene and embarrassing himself when he's probably already a living embarrassment in the eyes of his culture. Because he believes that Jesus is merciful. And in the words of Hebrews eleven six, not only that Jesus is merciful, that Jesus rewards those who seek him. Let me read that for us in Hebrews chapter 11, a very well-known chapter in this beautiful book that is all about faith. Hebrews eleven six, and without faith, it is impossible to please him, God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of those who seek him. Jesus stopped and said, call him here. So they called the blind man saying, take courage, stand up. He is calling for you. And throwing aside his cloak, he jumped up and came to Jesus. And answering him, Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabboni, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, go, your faith has made you well. And immediately he regained his sight and began to follow him on the road. It would be a shame to go through this text this evening and not stare that question down when Jesus asks him, what do you want me to do for you? It's just a scary question for us. I believe that when we read this, I believe that Jesus is asking us the same question. And so I just want to ask you, what do you want Jesus to do for you? This isn't rhetorical. This isn't some ethereal, vague concept that you think about, you walk out the door, and then it just floats away. I'm asking you, what do you, in this moment, what do you want Jesus to do for you? And be specific. Think about it. And the interesting thing about this question, as you continue to think about it, is the fact that this isn't the first time Jesus asked it, is it? This is the question that he asked his disciples in the section prior to this. These disciples, they want Jesus to do something. In fact, they put it, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. And so he says, he's got to know where this is going when they come up to him like that. What do you want me to do for you? And they said, grant that we may sit, one on your right and one on your left in glory. That sounds pretty different, doesn't it? That, the posture of the heart, when Jesus is interacting with these disciples, sorry, the posture of the heart of the disciples when they're interacting with Jesus seems a lot different than the posture of blind Bartimaeus' heart, doesn't it? And so when I'm asking you that question, what do you want Jesus to do for you? I think that is a very necessary follow-up question. What is your motivation? When you come up with an answer to that question, what is motivating that answer? Now, 
Let me back up for just a moment and talk about why this question bothers us so much. There's some people in this room that even though you believe the tenets of the gospel and you really do, you may struggle with the goodness of God. I know that sounds like a contradiction, but it, it can really happen. I know that because I experienced that. I believe that Jesus died for sins because he is good. I believe that he rose again because he is good. I believe that he sits at the right hand of the Father because he is good, that he gives generously the Holy Spirit because he is good, that he gives good things to his children because he is a good father. But for some reason, I have problems believing that God wants to be good to me. And I'm guessing I'm not the only one in the room that feels that way. That God wants to be really, really generous with other people, but when it comes to you, it's like he's a miser. That perhaps it's like squeezing blood from a turnip, I think is the way it's said. And so this question bothers you because you've never even begun to thought that God might want to give you something. That God might want you to actually say, God, please give me this, and that he wants to do it. The very thought of that just blows your mind. But why else would Jesus ask that question to this man who has nothing? How cruel would it be if Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? And then he says what he wants and Jesus is like, oh, sweet, peace, I'll see you later. And he just takes off. That would be the cruelest thing that Jesus could say. So he's asking the question because he wants to give the man what he says. And I believe it's the same for you. I believe that there are things that are on your heart and that God is asking you that question, what do you want me to do for you? I believe that part of that question may be to reveal what your motivation is. Just in me asking you that question, maybe you feel a little bit ashamed at where your heart went, the thing that you really wanted. Maybe you realize that you're not quite like this blind Bartimaeus who's just crying out for mercy. That's all he can muster is just mercy, God. Have mercy on me. In fact, maybe you feel like you're on the other end of that. You're more like the rich man. And you're, you want to ask for something that will merely prop up that idol in your life. You know the strange thing about that rich man? He asks for eternal life. And you know what that means? For someone who really wants eternal life, it means they want to be forever in the presence of God, beholding his beauty, beholding his glory, enjoying him. And did you notice what happens to this? He's asking for eternal life when it's exposed that his God is not the God of Israel, but money. Do you know what that means? When he asked for eternal life, it meant that I am so glad with my state of living right now, God, please tell me there's a way that it can continue forever. And so when Jesus asks this question, what do you want me to do for you? It may have just been exposed to you that you are no different than that rich man, that the thing you want is for the continuation of things just as they are so that you can hold on to this idol that is robbing you of your affections from God. That's why that question scares us. It also scares us because we wonder if we say something, is God going to respond? 
Now, we have to be careful because God does at times respond in ways that surprise us. I mean, how did God respond to Paul who was crying out for mercy to his Savior to remove the thorn from his flesh? What did Jesus say to him? He said, no, because that thorn in your flesh means that you will stay weak and through your weakness, I will be shown strong. And you saw the words, those lyrics up on the screen during the reflection of Francis Fanny Cosby a hymn writer in the 1800s who was blind. And such beautiful words, pass me not, O gentle Savior, hear my humble cry, while on others you are calling, Don't, do not pass me by. And people would ask her, why hasn't God healed you? And I'm paraphrasing her response, but every time she would say, God hasn't healed me because he loves me. And he hasn't healed me because I love him more as a blind person than if I were healed. So there are times that, that we are afraid because we don't know how God is going to respond. He doesn't necessarily operate out of a formula. But here, we have to address the fact that this man was asked the question and he told Jesus exactly what he wanted and he got exactly what he wanted. That is something that this Jesus still does. And I believe that there's at least one person in this room that that question is going to be echoing around in your head for the rest of the night, maybe for all of next week, for all this month, because he wants you to name something very specific and he wants to give it to you. Now, when it comes to this healing... Physical healing is possible. When you're answering that question, maybe that's a part of it, but maybe it's not. You know, the thing about physical healing, guys, what was going on in those days is they clearly did not have the level of, of medical expertise that we experience now in our day. And it's obvious. And I am willing to accept that this man's condition perhaps was such that if he were time warped into our day, there may be a treatment for it and a miracle wasn't even necessary. And so there's a bigger point here. In his day, physical ailment, this blindness, meant that every single, that he came to the end of his resources and he came to the end of the resources of his culture and the resources of the world to address his problem. And in that instance, the only hope he had was Jesus. And when you back it up and you apply that generally, that fits a lot of us, doesn't it? It doesn't have to be just a physical illness. God does cure cancer in miraculous ways. I've heard stories. I've seen testimonies of people who have said they have been cured of HIV AIDS, gone in a day. That stuff still exists, but that may not matter to some of you. Some of you, it may be your, your marriage is falling apart and the counseling isn't working. Your friend's help isn't working. The books aren't working. The magazine articles aren't working. Dr. Phil isn't working. Nothing is working. You have reached the end of your resources. You've reached the end of the resources of your culture and of this world and your marriage is still falling apart. 
And in that case, you fit exactly where this blind man was when he cried out for mercy and Jesus gave him a miracle. And that may be the exact miracle that you're thinking of. It may be an addiction that you are struggling with. It may be a sin in your life that you just cannot kick. It may be this thing that you have wanted ever since you were little, but, and you know you're supposed to give it up, but you just can't do it. There are so many things that this could apply to. It could be a wayward child. Someone who you have prayed for or a friend or a neighbor or a family member that just is destroying themselves and you have prayed and you have given counsel and you have done so much and you are at the end of your resources. You're at the end of everyone else's resources and so on. Nothing is working. This may be the answer to that question, what do you want me to do for you? But it's not just about how Jesus responds to that question. It's not just about if he answers that. If, if you say, Jesus, I want this to happen, and he gives it to you, it's not about just that, because that's not what's going on in this story. He does get healed, but what happens as a result? It says, immediately he regained his sight and began following Jesus on the road. Where was that road going? To Jerusalem and to death. So as a result of this man's personal desolation and crying out for mercy and meeting Jesus in a real way, it was an occasion to believe that Jesus is worth following even in the way of the cross. Because if you want to follow Jesus, I assure you those seasons of personal desolation will come and your faith and the metal of your faith will be tested. And when you cry out for mercy, by the grace of God, you will get to a point where you say, Jesus, I'm hurting I don't understand. I'm confused. I feel lost, but you are still worth following. How significant is this to the kingdom of God in us? And if this seems gloomy at all, I, I have really good news for you. Personal desolation is not the final word. And it's really subtle and you could miss it. But it's in here. It's in this story. You see, in those days, the cloak was a regular part of a person's life. The cloak could be some kind of outer garment just to protect from the elements, protect from the cold. It could also be a mat that you lay on the ground if you're out in the open air. It could be a blanket. It could be a pillow. It could be a lot of things. In fact, if, if you were impoverished, if you were poor, it could perhaps be the very last thing that you owned. There are laws in the Old Testament that protect the person's ownership of a cloak. Now, let me maybe explain through a, a bit of hyperbole and story. Let's say that there is a, a person who wants to engage in business in this day, and maybe he has... 
uh, a modest amount of money or possessions or, or real estate or whatever, but he wants to engage in some kind of business, but he does not have enough money to do it. Well, he can get a loan, but to do so, he would have to put up something as collateral. Well, let's just say in this imaginative story that this person continues to do that, but each successive business effort and venture fails and falls apart. And so this person continues to lose their collateral over and over and over again to the point where they are left with nothing. Did you know that there is a law in the Old Testament that says the cloak can be given as surety or as collateral for something, but it cannot be kept overnight? It means that at the end of the day, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter if the person paid it back or not. It has to be given back. And what that means is that is essentially the last piece of property that a poor person could own, and it would never be taken away from them. But for this poor man, that cloak would serve another purpose in his life. See, every day, as he's sitting beside the road, he would lay this cloak in front of him. And he wouldn't see what is set down on that cloak, but throughout the day, people would set bread or they would set money or they would set something on that cloak. And so not only was this cloak the last thing that this man would own, not only was it a symbol of his poverty, it also would become a symbol of his shame. That every day, this is the only thing I have, and I lay it out, and I am entirely dependent on other people to take care of me and to help keep me alive. How hard would that be? Day after day. But look what happens in the story. Verse 49, Jesus stopped and said, call him here. And so they called the blind man saying to him, take courage, stand up, he's calling for you. So Jesus says, come here. And what does he do with this thing that was the symbol of his poverty, the symbol of his shame? What does he do? He throws it aside. Personal desolation is not the final word. It is a part of the kingdom of God. It is a part of the process of following Jesus, but it is not the final word. For this man, he at some point would return and pick up his cloak. No one just leaves their cloak behind, but that cloak would be very different for him from that moment on. It is a part of following Jesus, this personal desolation. It is a painful place to be. It is a place we do not want to go. But it is a place that is necessary because it elicits in us the cry for mercy that we need to return to so often because we easily drift away in our own pretense, in our own arrogance, in our ego. We have to return to this place where we remember that we are poor and we are blind beggars in light of Jesus, the son of David, and we need to cry out for mercy. But in doing so, Jesus comes to us and he removes in the end that desolation. And here's why. 
again, he follows Jesus on the road to this place of, in Jerusalem. And what would happen? Jesus would go, he would minister a little more, he would teach a little more, but ultimately he would be betrayed, he would be arrested, he would be condemned falsely, accused falsely, he would be beaten, he would be flogged, he would be mocked, he'd be ridiculed. This is the son of David we're talking about. And then he would be hung on a cross and brutalized and publicly shamed. And then he would die. Personal desolation is not the end and final word for us because the son of God, the son of David, was personally desolated for us. That this is an experience that he underwent on our behalf so that the resurrection he would experience would be the same resurrection that we would experience. And so I want to close one more time with that question. What do you want Jesus to do for you? Father, I thank you for the opportunity to study your word tonight. I thank you that Jesus is the hero. In every story we read, in every song we sing, we want Jesus to be the hero. Thank you that he is worthy. Thank you that he is the son of God, that he is Messiah, that he is the son of man, that he is the son of David. God, I pray that you would help us to respond to him now, to respond to the fact that he was desolated on our behalf so that desolation might not be the final word for us. Lord, I pray that hearts in this room are convicted. I pray that hearts are encouraged. I pray that hearts are edified and uplifted. Whatever it is that you need to do, God, please do it now and do it for your glory and for our joy in you, Jesus, we pray. Amen.